Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 154 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Moshe Barr. Moshe is a neuroscientist, the former director of the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at Harvard Medical School and author of the book Mind Wondering. In the next hour, you're going to learn what mind wandering is and why our brains spend a massive 47% of waking hours non-consciously thinking about things that we're not in control of, how letting your mind wander and become distracted in the moment can actually help boost creativity and productivity, the science behind visualization and how the brain processes our imagination in a very similar way to actual memories, where shower thoughts come from and how to foster better thoughts in your life and so much more. This conversation, I've just watched it back before I edited this episode and put it live, is actually really surreal for me. Tell me a few years ago that I was going to sit down with a world-renowned neuroscientist and not only find what we're speaking about interesting, but actually be able to keep up for an hour with somebody who is clearly so qualified and so respected in their area. And I think that you were lying, but it's credit to Moshe in this conversation for making such a complex and such a hard-to-penetrate subject matter so easy to understand. He breaks down this concept of mind wandering in a really nice way during this conversation. And I promise you, even if you're approaching this episode with a little bit of apprehension thinking, is this really for me? It definitely is. That number that I just said, right? 47% of our waking hours are spent mind wandering. This is something that we do constantly. And so if we can get a better grip of how we allow our mind to wander, there are just huge benefits that are unlocked. So give this one a listen. I know you're going to enjoy it, but just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to this right now. Later on today, I'm recording with Thomas Frank, productivity YouTuber OG. A couple of weeks from now, you're going to hear my conversation with David Robson. There are lots of great conversations coming up. You don't want to miss them, so make sure you're subscribed. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 154 of Life and Lessons with Moshe Bar. So Moshe Bar, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today because since I uncovered the idea of mind wandering, it has fascinated me. Um, I know it's something that's going to connect with lots of listeners who are listening right now because it kind of uh, tangentially connects to lots of theories, lots of concepts that we've spoken about on the podcast before. But before we dive into it, before we really get into the nitty gritty, tell me what is mind wandering? Yes, thanks. So mind wandering is really a collection of processes, and there's no there's no surprise that people need a definition because it does sound a little amorphous. So we look at it as a cluster of processes that include anything from planning to ruminating, uh, creative incubation, mental simulations that hopefully we'll talk about, um, memory consolidation, reminiscing, uh, fantasizing. So there's a host of, of processes that fall under this, umbrella, this, this one umbrella. But when we try to dissect their, their, uh, their purpose, their function, we do see that there's uh, you know, two or three main elements. And so let's talk about that purpose, because I know you say that 47% of our waking hours is spent mind wandering, something that I think surprises everybody, because we think that we're consciously doing all the time and we're we're really in control of our our minds and our actions. So if almost half of our waking hours are spent on this kind of non-conscious level of thought that we're not even necessarily aware of per se, or if not, we're not controlling it, what is the purpose of all of this thought? Why have we evolved to do this? 
Yeah, there are a few things actually hidden in this uh, question of yours. So first of all, yeah, I th- I, I'm still stunned. It's hard for me to believe that really half of our waking hours, our mind is not where our body is. I think this is something that <laughs> should never cease to amaze us, uh, that really we are elsewhere with our mind. And the second thing is really the, the subjective illusion that we are in control of our thoughts and where they go, um, something that we can get back to. But you're right. I mean, for us scientists who, who believe in evolution and, and realize how much energy thoughts and, and brain uh, processes take, uh, you, you really cannot believe that there won't be any function for, for you know, 50% of our waking hours uh, um, being dedicated to, to wandering. So with this in mind, there started to be a quest for un, un, you know, unveiling uh, uh, what is the purpose of mind wandering. So this, is, this has been already like maybe 15 years. And the main purposes that we kind of uh, zeroed in on uh, include thinking about the self. There's a whole concept of self, you know, you're representing of who you are, what you are, how you respond to things, what you like, what you don't like, how you feel, etc. Also about the self of others. So it's very important for us to understand others, not necessarily in an empathetic, in empathetic way, but really something we call theory of mind. So you... Somebody approaches you, either somebody you know, you don't. You want to understand their intentions. You want to understand what do they have in mind when they say a certain things to you, a, th- a certain thing to you. So the idea here is really that this network that that mediates or the mind wandering overall is also dedicated to thinking about others. Other processes include the most uh, mundane, maybe and practical aspect of planning. Just you know the idea of sitting here and listening to me, but at the same time, you might be planning your, your next interview or your trip somewhere. So, you know, we have big minds that are really capable. So you can listen to me, still be attentive, but at the same time, part of your brain uh, would kind of churn away uh, making plans. So planning is another one. And, and something that we kind of championed in the lab, but others have, have done as well, is the idea of simulation. So you kind of imagine possible scenarios, which... I think is is another stunning aspect of our brain. So um, we can actually simulate, you know, what happens if there's a power shutdown now in the middle of the podcast, or, for, or what happens if I get this that message, right? So something that might be not necessarily likely, but nevertheless possible. So our mind uh, wanders away to kind of think about this scenario. And in it, hidden something uh, very useful that, again, you don't really realize until you study it. So you think about our memories. Uh, we tend to think about our memories being a result of experience, first-hand experience. So you, you, you burn your hand as a kid on a stove and you realize fire is hot. I shouldn't be doing it again. You engrave it in memory and, and you never do it again. You try not to do it again, right? So all our experiences... Uh, are kind of stored in memory and ha- or, like important experiences in our lives are stored in memory and serve our future uh, in helping us prepare and know how to how to uh, act. But this idea of simulation entails something else powerful, which is I call it learning from our imagination. So you can imagine a completely new scenario of having a vacation with somebody uh, you've never met, but you really want to have a vacation with in a, in a resort where you've never been, but you've heard of. And you can generate a whole simulation, a whole scenario that if this lucky thing happens, then you're ready. You have a, a kind of a script and, and 
I think I do say it in the book. There's a funny uh, uh, experience that started me going on this direction of research, which does sound ridiculous, but at the same time, uh, it teaches us a lot. So I remember 15, 17 years ago, sitting on an airplane and reviewing some scientific paper, and I have this blanket on my lap, and my mind and my eyes wander, and I land on the with my eyes on the emergency door. And my mind starts thinking, now what happens if this door opens and all of us fly out, right? So we're going to die. Uh, in order not to die, I need a parachute, but I don't have a parachute. Maybe I can use this blanket for a parachute, but the blanket will be torn away from my hands by the wind, so I need some holes. How would I make holes? There's a pen here that I'm using for reviewing the paper. I can punch holes in the, in the blanket. Now I have a parachute. Of course, not too realistic, not too likely, luckily. And I'm not sure, you know, these kind of holes would hold. But you see how with your, somebody from the side will look at me and might say, speaking of productivity, might look at me and say, he's not on target. He's not reviewing the paper. He's supposed to be reviewing his paper now. His mind is elsewhere. So to society, and I'm sure this will be a recurring theme in our in our conversation, for society, it shows like I'm slacking, right? It seems as if I'm slacking. But here you see a situation where I actually uh, generate a scenario of something that is not too likely to happen. But if it did happen, I would have been the most ready passenger on that airplane, right? And of course, we do these simulations not only to these extreme, ridiculous uh, uh, situations. You might be driving back home and thinking, oh, I'm hungry. What should I have for dinner? I remember what I have in the fridge. You kind of, you already plan your dinner. When you get to the kitchen, you're almost on autopilot uh, just because you already have a script. So, so uh, these simulations allow us to uh, you know, reshuffle existing memories, existing knowledge, but generating new scenarios and new scripts that if they happen, they're, all, they're also uh, stored in memory, just like memories that are based on real first-hand experience. So there's a whole new source of generating a productive memories based on things that never happen. And I think this is another useful tool to, that we should appreciate. In the lab, how do you discern the difference between, uh, I guess, controlled conscious thought, whatever the opposite of mind wandering is, and mind wandering? In as much as, if say a day before I picked up your book, you asked me to put a figure on what percentage of time I am kind of actively in control, I have agency of my thoughts and what I don't, I would self-report some huge figure, ninety-two percent, ninety-seven percent. How do we actually understand what is the brain almost taking itself down a path? So, so deriving this number of, you know, the percentage of, of which uh, uh, we're, we're spending a day, uh, mind wandering is based on a study of a colleague of mine, Dan Gilbert from Harvard and his student, uh, uh, Killingworth. And they developed a, an app that people who volunteer to participate agreed to be uh, prompted in random times during the day with simple questions like, uh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm daydreaming. What are you supposed to be doing? Uh, gardening or testing exam, you know, grading exams or whatever. This was a science paper, and I think uh, it led them to the wrong conclusion. The, the, the title of their paper was Mind Wandering was, is Making People Unhappy. And I'm a very good friend with a senior author there, and we talk, and he also endorses my, my, uh, my book. I think it's on the cover in the UK version. Dan Gilbert is a great, great scientist. Um, and I think the reason their conclusion was that my monitoring makes people unhappy is exactly because what we've been talking about here now, that society kind of instills in us this sense of guilt when we're not on target, when we're not performing our job. So if somebody asks you now, 
what are you doing? Uh, you say daydreaming. What are you supposed to be doing? Listening to Moshe, right? Of course, you won't feel happy about this. Do, are you happy? No, no, I'm not happy. I would rather listen to Moshe. That's my job. But my mind went elsewhere. So I think this can, this kind of is an example of why all of us as society think about mind wandering as kind of slacking or, you know, or being like a, an astronaut or you know, space cadet uh, thinking, not, not being where I'm supposed to be doing, where I'm supposed to be. Uh, but once we realize how much this achieves for us, uh, my, my, you know, one of the main messages I want to give to readers is that, you know, to, to read them of this feeling of guilt, of course, there's time to wander and there's time to be on the job. If you're flying a plane or if you're talking to your daughter, you do want to be at the moment. You don't want to be elsewhere. But uh, uh, the idea that mind wandering is categorically bad for us, I think is a bad idea and, and, and has to be revisited. So, yes. So in the lab, people have done things like this. We call it thought sampling. Just, you know, what are you thinking about now? What are you supposed to be thinking? You know, how, are you, how do you feel? You picked up on an interesting theme there because uh, I've had a bunch of productivity experts on the podcast this year. We've had Nira Yao, we've had Tiago Forte, Rick Pastor, these people who will tell you in one form or another that you're your sole focus of the day should be to stay focused, should be to do the thing, should be to to stay on task. And so I'm sure that they may listen to a stripped back version of this uh, this conversation if they didn't have the context that we've just built and say that actually just letting your mind wander is distraction. You shouldn't be doing that. But you make the case that the science says otherwise. You touched in your answer just there about what are the benefits. So what are some of the benefits of allowing your mind to wander? Well, first of all, the more... The way you describe these productive uh, creeds of, of you know people who, who work on productivity, it actually sounded a little sad. I don't want to project anything about other people here, but thinking that your entire mind should be dedicated to tasks and goals and tasks and goals that you should always be on task and, and, and achieving your goals, then kind of life passes by and you didn't stop to you know to smell the roses or look at the stars. So that's that's a side. That's just a way of living, maybe. But uh, the benefits, as I said. Before, uh, no, maybe I didn't say, but we do, I mean, other than better planning and better uh, uh, simulations um, and better understanding of yourself, uh, yourself and of others, uh, we and others have shown that mind wandering actually is the, is the vehicle for what we call creative incubation. So uh, how else would you get creative ideas if you don't wander? That's really the conclusion. It sounds a little provocative, but... The idea here is that if you're always busy and always doing something, you just are not left with any time for thinking and for incubating. Some of it, granted, is is taken care of by our unconscious mind being, you know, taking uh, happening behind the scenes of consciousness. But still, in order to uh, come up with a creative idea, your mind has to go elsewhere, so to speak, and it has to entertain multiple alternatives and multiple solutions. Uh, in creativity, maybe it's too early in our conversation to talk about it, but we're here anyway, so let me just uh, describe it. So the evolution of a creative idea can be uh, um, compared to a, the shape of a diamond. So it starts with what we call divergent thinking, where if this is the, like, the lowest part of the diamond, where everything goes. You generate as many ideas as possible. There's no stupid idea. There's no dumb idea. There's no impossible idea. You just generate as many ideas as possible. And everything I say here about creativity is akin to also what happens in a closed room in some company in a brainstorming session. 
You don't want to have any boss there, sensor that tells you, no, this is a great, terrible idea. This won't work. This, uh, there's no chance for this. And how did you come up with this stupid idea? But rather everything goes. And then the diamond closes in. This is what we call convergence, convergent thinking. And this is where the brain really evaluates all these many ideas and ends up with the best possible, you know, like the tip of the diamond, uh, kind of idea, right? So. In order to, to have this process successfully, you do have to be elsewhere. You do have to kind of, you know, look at the skies or close your eyes or be in the shower and whatever and not do anything specific, a, a demanding task, and first entertain all these possible ideas and then do the evaluation. Without these pauses for mind wandering, either voluntary or not, uh, we're doomed to have less creativity, I think, and, and, and less, you know, less creative ideas. So creativity is one major uh, aspect. I do think that also this type of thinking, what we call broad associative thinking, or, you know, kind of rec not reckless, but roaming uh, uh, thinking is, is also good for our mood. We've shown that, um, and you might want to, you might want us to discuss this later in the conversation, but in a nutshell, the idea here is that broad free thinking actually promotes, and we've shown this in the lab, promotes better mood. So it is a good idea uh, 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 to let your mind roam. Uh, of course, there's a few caveats here and we might get into them later, but the idea is that not all mind wandering is good. I'm not saying here categorically just wander, whatever happens, happens, just wander away. There are situations like, you know, when you're crossing the road, you don't want to wander off. When we get you, when you're giving a lecture, you don't want to wander off. Um, but at the same, and also when the content of your mind wandering is kind of maladaptive, something like, like, uh, repetitive ruminations and worries, uh, you don't want to be dwelling on such mind wandering. So there is, in the book, I do list good versus bad, it's simplistic terminology, but a good versus bad mind wandering and how do we cultivate the better ones and kind of try to shy away on or, or, or do things that kind of keep us away from the less uh, beneficial types of mind wandering. Just on a tangent here, as you were answering that, my mind ironically wandered to the idea of driving. So I've only been driving for about two years. And, uh, you know, the, the first few days, first few weeks of driving my car, terrifying, everything seemed like an immediate danger. I had to have this hyper focus on making sure that the car stayed in a straight line that took up all of my mental capacity. Um, and yet I find myself now on the way to the office, on the way back from the office, it seems that I need to word this carefully just in case this is used against me one day, but it seems like the last thing I'm actively thinking about is driving, right? It seems like driving is a great place for mind wandering. I'm thinking about this meeting, this or that. What happens in the brain to, to take a task from it being something that requires hyper attention to something that could almost happen on a level lower than mind wandering, where this mind wandering is the thing that consumes form? I agree with you. Driving is a, group, a great platform for all this discussion. I'm just really surprised that you've only, only been driving for two years. <laughs> I passed very, very late. I, uh, when, I, when I turned 18, I stopped driving lessons and discovered this thing called alcohol and nights out. And so all of my money went there for about <laughs> seven years and I finally got it back recently. Now I drive. Cool. So not only in driving, the brain is very efficient in once you learn something new, let's say I teach you to juggle, right? So, uh, initially it takes all your energy, this juggling, because it's completely mental energy. It's, it, it occupies all your mind because it's so demanding. It's so hard for you. And the moment, I know the, the more you rehearse a newly acquired skill, it becomes more and more, we call it really automatic. So 
the brain can delegate things that you know well enough and that you've rehearsed and practiced often enough to your subconscious so that it's not somebody else who's doing the driving, luckily, but you don't have to be bothered by the details. So once something is, pra is practiced enough, you can actually delegate it and do other things. And the other things we do are mind-wandering. And on, on a side note here, uh, what's beautiful about this is that even though our mind is elsewhere and we do the, the driving automatically, there are still mechanisms in place for you to detect. So even though you haven't been focusing on the, on the, on the driving, but on your mind wandering, if a ball, uh, 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 you know, crosses, like if, if, if something happens on the road, you're able to, to pull it, you know, to push the brakes or you're able to detect things or somebody calling your name. So, Still, there is all this surveying. So even when we mind wander and we really absorb, uh, our mind can still, I mean, I think it, the safest driving will be full on, on driving. But let's be realistic. Just what happens to you happens to most other people. So it's really hard to, to be busy with something that your brain voluntarily already delegated to the subconscious. So it's as if you're forcing your mind um, to excavate something that it has delegated to, to uh And in experiments with uh, fighter pilots and with uh, surgeons, they've shown that if they force them to kind of verbalize what they're doing and kind of make the unconscious conscious, it actually deteriorates their performance. So once a new skill becomes automatic and goes to the subconscious, then in many cases, it's actually not good to, uh, to your performance to kind of try to force yourself to make it conscious. So... Again, I don't recommend mind wandering and driving, but given this reality that that's how we, we work, uh, we, it's better to understand it. I want to go back to your piece on creativity, because this is something I found interesting in the book, which is this idea that this broad thought, this creative thought is good for our mood and good mood is in turn good for creative for right so there's this positive feedback loop that we want to get stuck in almost if we want to take advantage of this and yet if we were to sit here right now and i say right it's time to be creative you must be creative there's or, or indeed i tell you you must be in a good mood we can't force that right so how do we first jump into that loop how can we encourage that mindset yeah well there are two parts for this question first of all is really to explain this reciprocal connection between mood and and creativity that initially wasn't so intuitive And the second thing is really how to cultivate. So the idea here, and we've shown that when you make people uh, be engaged in more creative tasks. So, for example, the classic task for creativity is is a, a alternative uses task. So I give you, a, I show you this mug and I ask you, what else can I do with this other than drink my tea? So you can say, you know, a paperweight or you can a door stopper or I can put uh, flowers in it. And you think about all this extra So if I make you engage in, in creative solutions, then not only that it makes you more creative, you know, to, to an extent, we have not argued that we can turn everybody into a Leonardo da Vinci, but still can push your, your envelope of creativity. Then with it come the, 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 the welcomed, um, addition of positive mood. So improving creativity, which we often do by, uh, making you think more associatively, more broadly. Uh, improves mood and better mood also improves creativity. And what you said about uh, pushing one by forcing, you know, how do you do it without, you know, just forcing because forcing won't be too efficient is that we actually have shown that there are multiple things that go hand in hand. So it's not, the, the picture is much broader here. So it's not only that mood and creativity go together. It's also that 
when 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 mood is high and when uh, creativity is high, we also tend to see the world in broader terms. So we tend to see the forest rather than the trees, right? We see the world more globally than locally. We're also more explorers than exploiters. Explorers tend to take risks to uh, be willing to compromise safety and, and live with uncertainty in order to learn new things. So you're more explorer in this case rather than resorting to, to non-routines and, and habits. Uh, so the list goes on and on. There's actually not on and on, but there's like a five elements that we've shown in the paper about states of mind where that go together. And I call this multiple entry points. So just like you pointed, I cannot tell you, okay, Sean, feel better now. There's no way I can do this. But if I know that all these elements tie together, imagine I show you a bunch of pictures and I encourage you to see the forest, so to speak, or the big picture other than the small elements. And with it comes an improvement both in creativity and in mood and all these other things. So uh, it might sound too provocative, but the idea here is that people with an open mind, with broad associations, will be in a better mood, more creative, more explorers, willing to take risks in order to experience new experiences, see the world more globally, and vice versa. So we actually have you know, a little startup company now that uses it exactly this reciprocal connections, you know, to alleviate symptoms of people with depression, to how do you improve mood? How do you improve anhedonia? By uh, doing these alternative manipulations of thinking more globally or uh, more broadly. It's interesting. I was thinking just at the end of your answer there of the work of Johan Hari, who wrote the book, Lost Connections. I had to think which of his two books I was referencing there. Um, and he talks about some of the, the research behind the seven potential causes of depression. Um, and it's interesting that a commonality between lots of the, the claimed causes of depression in his work is these kind of uh, condensed down worlds, whether it is a lack of connection with others, whether it is a lack of community. And actually, it's interesting to hear the science backs this up, that, that broadening the scope of our worlds is a way to actually improve mood and then jump into that loop that we speak of. Interesting. I'm actually not familiar with this book. What is the name again? It sounds like it could be useful for me to read it as well. Lost Connections, really, really interesting book. So it is, to, to summarize, I believe it's essentially a look at how the science now says quite recently that uh, causes of depression are not just what's going on with chemicals in the brain, but actually it can be uh, proven through research that things such as a lack of social connection, a lack of community, a lack of meaning, and so on are equally as powerful in either causing or preventing depression. Really interesting. Although I've, I've personally never suffered from depression, just as a kind of look into that world of what the, the research might say is good news down the track. A really interesting book. Yeah, I'm, I'm ordering it as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, so something I want to speak about is the idea of shower thoughts, because they're super interesting to me, right? Similarly to what we just spoke about with driving the car, these thoughts that seem to come out of nowhere, right? They seem to come out of nowhere, but they can't come out of nowhere. Something must be happening on a non-conscious level. So uh, I don't know, let's say I've just had an idea for a headline that I'm going to use in a pitch with a client tomorrow, right? And it feels like it's come to me from nowhere. What's actually led up to that point in this mind wandering that has occurred in the moments before I have the aha moment? What has actually been almost resurfaced and how? Yeah. So this is a great question. And I was, you know, as I was thinking about thoughts before uh, writing the book, but also during the, uh, the writing process, I realized embarrassingly how little we know as neuroscientists about what is a thought in the brain. So really, not only that we don't know the sources, we also don't know how does it look in the brain. But you know, focusing on the source of a thought, 
There's no question that there is an associative chain of thoughts that, you know, if I let, if you will be left to your own devices, uh, uh, the thought that you will be waking up with, uh, will lead to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, all the way to tonight where you go back to sleep. So, uh, there, there's a chain of thoughts. And, and the reason I said be left alone is that we often have disruptions for our environment. So there's, uh, this chain of, of associative thoughts will be disrupted by some, uh, sound from outside the window or some discussion with people or some commercial I see. Um, so, but, but this only speaks about the movement of thoughts and what leads, you know, what, what, what thought you know, leads to another, but we do, I mean, Freud and others have talked about how the subconscious kind of comes up with some thoughts that, you know, oh, why was I thinking now about my high school teacher, right? I have no idea why he came to mind, but uh, maybe, maybe this, this plant behind you, uh, uh, kind of reminded me of a plant he brought to class and, but consciously I can't really track this back. So there's still a lot to be learned about the source of, of, of thoughts and, and, and where they come from. But there's definitely, when you talk about the shower and other, uh, situations that kind of are more conducive for, for, for a creative uh, mind wandering, it doesn't speak about the source as much as it speaks about your state of mind that's more conducive for creative thinking. So uh, you don't need to go to meditation retreats like I like to go from time to time in order to have these conditions, right? So it's enough for you not to have uh, uh, too much disruption around you and, you know, a reasonable level of concentration and some background ideas and thoughts that, that require some creative solutions then you have the recipe for, you know, creative thinking. So, uh, yeah, so, so these circumstances that are more conducive kind of uh, are, are also curious in the sense that you don't want to be in a completely uh, non-stimulating environment. If I just put you in a white room closed with no sound, no smell, no vision, no nothing, no vision, but just white walls, this won't be the, the most, you know, the most creative environment, just like putting in front of a white canvas. But, um, so you do need some level of stimulation, which may very well be, be coming from, from inside you, right? So you don't need stimulation from the outside necessarily. It's enough that you're kind of brewing some thoughts that given the right circumstances, you can pursue them all the way to a solution or creative idea. So I want to talk about pursuing thoughts in a sense with the idea of simulation, because, uh, reading uh, about simulation in a scientific context sounds a lot like the pseudoscience of visualization and the secret and just close your eyes and wish you have a helicopter and you'll have a helicopter, right? But these are two very different things. And yet it seems like there is a line where the science to an extent agrees with the idea that dreaming up these not yet inexistent realities is good, is positive. So what does the science say about simulation? And if we can call it visualization, visualization. Right. So <laughs> Oftentimes, like there's uh, multidisciplinary and, and multi-angled uh, uh, research on this. It's not too coherent, but the idea here is like if we looked at the brain of somebody thinking about the past and simulating a possible future. If I tell you, Sean, now you're in the market in the MRI, and I ask you to imagine uh, a dinner with friends uh, on next Monday in a in a in a restaurant you like. And you haven't been with this friend at this restaurant, but you can, I can look at your brain while you're doing this. And the activity is very similar to if I ask you, Ashon, uh, can you recall now, bring back to memory 
an experience of having dinner with this friend at this bar that you did that actually did happen. And we see a striking similarity between envisioning a future scenario versus recalling a, a past scenario. So, I mean, in retrospect, obviously, once you see the you see the finding, you really like in many great findings, you realize, oh, this is obvious. I mean, how else would you imagine a new scenario without um, kind of retrieving old scenarios and building on them, right? So, so these simulations, one one tool that it really provides us with provides us with is that what we call mental time travel. You can take the past and travel with it to the future, right? So you can imagine. Uh, maybe your trip to Tel Aviv, and I'm showing you some cool bars here. And and even though we've we never hung out together, and you have been to Tel Aviv maybe once, but uh, you don't know these places I want to take you to. But we can both kind of generate a simulation of something like this. So yes, there's a lot of overlap between uh, what you described, maybe as uh, folk science versus uh, real neuroscience. Uh, we do we do need the simulations. These simulations, as I said before, generate. I call it memories, quote unquote, because they're not based on real experience, but they're very useful. I can ask you, Sean, would you like a sandwich with strawberry jam and sardines? And you don't need to taste it to, to tell me, no, thank you, right? Or would you like me to uh, knock you on the foot with, uh, you know, nails and, and a hammer with nails? You don't need to try it, to, right? So you run a quick simulation. And simulation is not... I mean, it is a big word for something that we do tens of thousands, I'm just throwing a number, but tons of times a day. At the junction of each decision we make, we run a quick simulation. If you open your fridge and you see chocolate cake and cheesecake and you want to have a cake, right? You choose one. You don't take both. You choose one. And the reason you do this and the way you do it, your mind kind of runs a quick simulations of your state of, you know, state of the body, your memory of how you feel when you, after you eat ch- cheesecake versus chocolate cake. And you make one choice based on this quick simulation that you, so except very impulsive decisions, each of our decision is, is preceded by a little simulation of potential outcomes. And we choose the one that seems to be uh, likely to yield the most uh, favorable outcome. I was listening to a talk of yours last night and you said that in the lab right now, you're doing some work to, to demonstrate the link between creativity and curiosity. And if I think back to lots of the conversations I've had on this podcast with guests in the past, curiosity seems to be this word that comes up over and over again as this thing that can bring novelty to our lives, almost slow down the passing of time, lead to a more meaningful life, all of these big claims. And yet we look at curiosity uh, at least by my definition, almost as this like predecided binary thing is part of your personality, right? You're either curious or you're not. But, and this might be a big question. I don't know if we can have an environment that, that encourages creativity and there is a link between the two. Can we therefore actually encourage ourselves to be more curious? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, there are many good things that, to answer here in this question. One of them, when you talk about design or you said the city or the, or the street or like, you know, environments, I had, I once worked with an architect there and actually speaking of, uh, I'm, I'm happy to speak with a, with a British person to talk about this paper we had or this article we had in the Guardian several years ago, and we call it a manifesto for, uh, for uh, conscious cities. And the idea here is exactly that to how do you design environments that, you know, class, how would you design classrooms to promote creative, creative thinking or to trigger a curiosity, curiosity. 
So there's definitely a way, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't want to pretend that I've mastered the, the prescription for the best possible, but we have some clues and uh, these are the best around for now. So we keep on working on this. And he had that the architect has taken it further to kind of having a whole uh, cult of conscious city. We call it conscious cities. Uh, you can look it up and, and it has taken a more architecture and urban design um, directions. So, but back to your question. Yes. So, the other thing I wanted to, to, add, to, to address in your question, which is not a question directly, but you did mention, this is the aspect of personality. So in the lab, in a more scientific writing beyond the actual book where I tried to make things more accessible for everybody, uh, we, ter- we coined this term uh, we call state of mind. And state of mind may mean different things to different people, but the idea here, and I hope it's uh, not to get too technical, the idea here is that we really have all these dimensions I mentioned before, creativity, mood, uh, global versus local thinking, uh, global versus local attention to our environment, exploration versus exploitation. And the idea here is that there's really a spectrum, like a continuum for all this, where you can be more or less of each one of them. You, the specific individual, you, Sean, can be more creative or less creative depending on circumstances. So, of course, there's personality and, of course, there's some, you know, given you inherited some level of creativity and you can be more or less uh, uh, extreme. But the idea here is that all of us have some range where we can be more or less of. Right. So you can be at times less creative or more creative. And by talking about these multiple entry points, as I said before, you can manipulate, you know, if you want your workers Given what I've said so far, if you're some boss and you want your workers to come as creative as possible to some brainstorming session, our findings and findings by others show that they'll be more creative and they're in better mood. So do you just pull them out of their cubicles and put them in a brainstorming session? Or maybe you find some ways of improving their mood, you know, give them a raise or show them some um, Monty Python clip just before they start the session. And uh, science shows that just by improving their mood, you're improving the the creativity of the thinking. So the same about curiosity, curiosity. And and what I just said about creativity, I think gives all of us hope uh, because people think, oh, I'm not creative. Uh, I wasn't born creative or I can't be any more creative. And realize that there is like a, a, a continuum that can be pushed. I think gives us hope and it's like, okay, I'm not as creative as I should be now, but here are the situations where I can be more creative, maybe in the shower <clears throat> and take advantage of this knowledge. And in our research, we talk about how creativity and curiosity are actually the same mechanism, like two, two sides of the same mechanism. So one of them is, is oriented inwardly versus outwardly. So creative is is like seeking novel ideas in your own mind, right? In your own memory, in your own semantic network of all the things you know. So you're looking for new ideas. Whereas curiosity is oriented outwardly. It's like, where do I find novel information, novel and interesting uh, uh, information? So curiosity is just like creativity uh, directed at my environment versus uh, uh, creativity that can be seen as curiosity uh, that's more internal. So we've spoken so far about lots of the benefits of mind wandering. Do you fear that we're losing our ability to effectively mind wander? Is that 47% being slowly pushed down and down? Because I think about my life and I think I live a fairly unstimulated life relative to those around me. But, you know, any moment when I'm alone with my thoughts, when I could be mind wandering, 
I've got my phone, I've got my laptop, I've got that person I can FaceTime. Are we actually suffocating out this solitude and in turn losing some of these benefits we've spoken about? Yeah, so that's a good question. There's, um, there's a short story by, by Kurt Vonnegut they really like uh, called Her- uh, Harrison Bergeron. Harrison Bergeron, yeah. So the idea there, it, this is like a, a, a futuristic... Uh, Futuristic world where they try to make everybody equal. So if somebody, some uh, girl was born very light and can be really jump high and be very amazing prima donna dancer, they put weights on her legs so she doesn't jump too high. And if, if you're born smarter than average, then they put these headphones that every 20 seconds play a loud buzz, you know, sound that disrupts your thoughts. And the idea here is not to let you develop ideas that are too complicated and too advanced compared with your fellow uh, friends, fellow uh, humans. So I think there's a, a really an analogy to how we live now, right? I mean, you, you kind of try to pursue a certain thought and then your phone beeps or somebody knocks on the door, or you got an email that, that, that uh, or something. So of course, there are more sources. The more we advance technologically, there are more sources for, our, uh, for disrupting mind-wandering. And I remember vividly, my oldest son is 22 now, but when he was maybe 10 or 12, we were driving, I was still living in the US and we were driving a car and there was some old uh, rock uh, song. And there is a solo guitar song. I don't know what, I don't remember what band it was. And then my son from the back seat said, I really feel bad for the lead singer. And I said, why do you feel bad for the lead singer? And he says, what is he doing during this solo guitar? <laughs> so it's like just these 10 or 15 seconds of, of guitar, uh, the guy finds himself idle and my son worries about how is he going to, to fill up his time. So I do think that all this disruption kind of, uh, I mean, I'm not opposing technology and I think people worry too much of, you know, screens for kids and all these things. I'm actually very liberal with my kids about this. I, I see a lot of merit, but in the specific context of, just too many options. I mean, you, you're waiting. I'm waiting for a, fr- a friend apologizing that he's 10 minutes late to our meeting in a cafe somewhere. Like, don't worry about it. I got my phone, right? So I, I start looking at my phone and it's like I can be immersed there for the next uh, 24 years, right? I mean, there's endless information there. So you can think about, oh, we're losing them because back in the day, I would just sit in a cafe and, and wonder. But I, I think it's too dramatic to think this way. A, uh, when you'll be looking at your phone instead of just mind wandering, you'll be exposed to other ideas that might trigger other types of mind wandering. And, and also when I sit idle without a phone, you know, I'll, I'll be observing other people. So that's another type of disruption, so to speak. So there's a whole, I wouldn't worry about losing the ability, but I think by again, encouraging people to respect their mind wandering, to stay extra 10 minutes in bed in the morning and not feeling guilty about it. Um, is, is precious and it will kind of give us, you know, give us back our right and our privilege of, of developing more creative ideas by not feeling obligated to do something all the time. In a similar vein, do you think the mind wandering, particularly I see this with, with my generation, with people in their twenties say, do you think mind wandering has a branding problem? Because when I sit with my thoughts, as uncomfortable as it is sometimes, I have grasped the ability to appreciate that this is a good thing. And yeah, I speak to some of my peers and when they sit with their thoughts, they say, oh, I'm overthinking. Oh, this is terrible. 
have we become so uncomfortable with our own thoughts because we think that they shouldn't be there that actually it's not the devices stopping us it is our own mind stopping us from exploring these thoughts yeah that's a great question and that's a great sentiment i think that actually it's a good uh trigger for for talking about the content of thought which we haven't really discussed at length and the idea here is really that some thoughts are better be left alone and not pursued right if you worry aimlessly uh, or you worry repeatedly repeatedly in circles what we call ruminations about something that won't get you anywhere other than torment you of course you don't want to be thinking about this too much right so if you said to somebody over dinner like a bad comment to this uh a person over dinner yesterday and you keep thinking about all the directions and uh, what will she think about me now and the other people over dinner what should I have said I'm such a loser blah 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 you go over and over and over this is overthinking or because you're thinking too much about something that's futile that's like you know just pick up the phone and say you're sorry right I mean just move on with your life so uh, the idea here is really that overthinking is content dependent because on the other uh, uh, extreme or the other example something, you know, a good idea pops into my mind and I don't want to be disrupted. I just want to follow it through. So in those cases, there's no overthinking. You're thinking about something productive or, th- or something pleasurable, right? If you reminiscing on a, on a good experience you've had, there's no overthinking there. You're just uh, reliving it and enjoying it. So it really, um, the, 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 the term overthinking should be reserved to ruminations, to worries, to things where you cannot do anything about, but, uh, they, they haunt you. And, and, if I may, uh, this connects to another interesting uh, topic about thoughts, which is how involuntary they are and how in spite of our subjective feeling of agency, we are really far from being able to control what we think about. And in classic ex- experiments with another uh, great friend of mine from Harvard, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, Dan Wagner, uh, telling people not to think about polar bears, that's the only thing they think about, right? If you just tell people, don't think about white bears versus tell people, you know, think about whatever you want (laughs) or even tell them, think about polar bears. They'll think less than if you tell them not to think about it. And you can project these findings to to clinical world of people with PTSD, with some traumas that they try to uh, stay away from some uh, hunting, uh, you know, tormenting thoughts, intrusive thoughts. You can't really just tell them, stop thinking about this explosion you saw, right? There's really so... Are, but it, it, it's not reserved only to, to pathological cases. I mean, you don't want to be thinking about uh, this dinner from yesterday, but your mind keeps taking you there. So you have to find other ways of escaping it rather than just telling yourself, okay, let's stop thinking about it. Let's stop thinking about it. So we're really not uh, perfect agents of our thinking process and mind wandering in particular, which I'm diverting, but just uh, I will finish with this thought that Oddly, we're not conscious of our mind wandering. We're conscious, not the, I'm not talking about the content, but the fact that we are wandering. We're only becoming aware that we wandered just when we finish. So I just, oh my God, I was elsewhere for, sorry, Sean, I wasn't listening to you for the last minute. I was thinking about uh, some hike I had last weekend, right? So only after the fact, we realize that we've been wandering, but during the wandering itself, I'm not, you don't, nothing inside your mind tells you, Hey, you're wondering, you're wondering, you're wondering, get back to take, get back to your goal. So, um, and the same way you cannot summon mind water. You can say, okay, let's, uh, let's mind model now about some creative solution. So 
there's I know in the book I do talk about some some little tips that my editor forced me to write in there, and I'm actually thankful that he forced me to have this appendix there with some useful tips, uh, even though I didn't feel comfortable initially about this as a scientist, but there are things that, that can you know people can use for uh for finding their own you know methods but uh yes, yeah, so you can you can maybe increase the likelihood of more positive slash productive mind wandering, but you can't really dictate to your mind what to think about. I want to dive into those tips in just a second, but there's something really interesting that you said halfway through your answer there that I want to just throw off as a tangent very briefly. So you said that there are tools to kind of prompt thought, to shape our thoughts as we go into it. When we're stuck in that cycle of thought and we desperately want to get out, you know, we're thinking about that silly thing we said, we, we just, we can't think about anything else. I don't want to water it down by using the word trick or hack, but why not? Are there any tricks or hacks that the science say can actually push us out of that cycle? Yeah. Well, there's no magic bullet that, you know, if you pr- if you press your pinky three times, you'll stop with ruminations. There's no question that a distraction helps in this case. So while I don't uh, like distractions from positive mind wandering, a distraction in this case or some escape is good. But with clinical ruminations, people with depression, anxiety, and other uh, mood disorders, this is a serious business. And for them to stop ruminating, there's no trick. It's more like some kind of training, as I mentioned before, in the lab and now in the startup, we really try to cultivate a pattern of thinking that's less likely to yield ruminations. So if your mind is expansive, it goes in broad directions far and fast, it's less likely to be stuck. So the the depressed mind is stuck in the sense that it goes in circles and it's very narrow in semantic terms. But if I make you as a patient, so to speak, uh, regain the ability for the healthier type of thinking that is more associative and expensive, then you're less likely to be encountering ruminations in the future. So it's it's less of an immediate trick and more like acquiring new mental habits that will make it less likely for you to ruminate in the future. And then let's end on what you just touched on in the few minutes that we have left. So you said that at the end of the book, there are uh, tools that we can use to make sure that we are mind wandering more positively, more ably. We've spoken about all of the benefits of mind wandering. So if somebody's listening to this, uh, they haven't yet ordered their book, but they're about to, and they're thinking, actually, I want to give this a go. What are some of the things that they can do today to encourage this mind wandering? Yeah. So at the outset, as a scientist, I do feel like I want to start with the boring stuff, which is the warnings. And I don't want people to uh, leave this conversation or to leave my book thinking that there are some secrets here that can make you... uh, amazing in in like two in after you hear these three tips but our understanding actually helps you improve the situation until you really optimize it for yourself so as i said before for example if you know that um mood and creative thinking and exploration and global attention all go hand in hand you know that in order to be thinking more broadly, maybe you'll be thinking more broadly when you're in a, not maybe, we know this, you'll be thinking more broadly and more creatively when you're in a better mood. So if I recommend that you take 15 minutes of mind wandering a day, which I will never do because I just told you that mind wandering cannot be dictated. You're not the boss here. You cannot tell your mind to mind wander now for 15 minutes. But let's say that you catch yourself mind wandering and uh, you have the option of others saying to yourself, Sean, I, I better go back to uh, uh, work or uh, why don't I stay on this couch for an extra 10 minutes and pursue this, you know, these creative juices. So uh, I see I lost my, my channel of thoughts now. <laughs> so uh, uh, 
<clears throat> the idea here is that um, that if I just look at myself as I wonder and I say, am I in a good mood? Am I thinking broadly, right? This could be tips for you uh, to understand, is this a constructive uh, mind wandering? If I know I'm in a depressed mood, I just don't want to wonder, period. If I'm in a bad mood, I want to watch some TV show, right? I want to just get away from my thoughts. But if you're in a positive mood, I know that my uh, uh, thoughts are more likely to be creative. So these are circumstances that increase the likelihood of productive thinking. So here we go back to productivity. We, we think mind-wandering might not be productive, but mind-wandering can be very productive and you have to be able to distinguish. So looking at all this, I don't want to say peripheral, but uh, um, other elements that go, that go in tandem with, with, with uh, positive and, and, and productive mind-wandering, just recognizing them and really by looking at these uh, elements, how you know how they're characterized, you're it's very quick. You're very quick to kind of learn how to recognize good from from bad uh, mind wandering. So yeah, being in a, in, a, in a less distractful environment but still stimulating, being in a better mood, being in a more global kind of uh, perspective in the world will, is more likely to summon, so to speak, uh, more positive and more productive mind wandering. So again, the bottom line is that not all mind wandering is good, but definitely a good chunk of mind wandering is good for us and we should uh, give it respect. <laughs> Amazing. Listen, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. I'm going to make sure that mind wandering is linked in the show notes below. So anybody who wants to go and get a copy can go and get a copy. In the meantime, if people want to go elsewhere to find you and to find your work, where can they head to? Google. <laughs> find me on Google. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... I have, you know, I, I, there's my lab with all the publications. You can do uh, moshebar.org. There's a link to all my work. Uh, I, I'm, you can easily find me and I'm happy to hear from people about their impressions, fed, feedback, good things, bad things, suggestions. Uh, happy to, that's part of my uh, mission. It's funny that I'm maybe, I'm maybe 50 guest episodes in and you're the first person to correctly say that the right answer to that final question is just Google. So there we go. Everybody can Google you. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate talking with you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.